The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. First verse, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James has a great way of tying things together, uh, moving from from point to point uh, very clearly. His... The word he uses for greeting, Cairo, is not the word Paul uses for greeting. And so the, the word uh, James uses here means rejoice or be glad. And so he ties these two verses together. He says, greetings or rejoice, be glad, count it all joy in the next verse. He ties that from point to point. Then he goes on and he says, for you know, verse 3, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness in the next verse and let steadfastness have its full effect and then at the end of verse 4 it says that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing in the next verse our text today if, if any of you lacks wisdom and so he ties it together with these words so that we'll know what he's talking about it could be you could take that verse 5, 6, 7, 8 and following out of context and not connect it to trials. But James makes sure that we connect it to trials. That's what he's talking about, that. Keep keep that in mind as we walk through this. He also says, we looked at last week in verse 3, that his readers know that trials are a part of their walk with the Lord. He knows that... um, Trials are important in their lives to grow them, to make them into what he's called them to be. And trials come naturally if they live out their commitment of faith. And that's true for you and me as well. He says, you know. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What do they know? We looked at these last week. Trials test your faith. Trials don't produce faith. Trials don't destroy faith. Trials test your faith. And they only test your faith. Trials tested in you, or faith tested in you, can bring out the best in you. You know that. Testing works for us. Testing doesn't work against us. You know that. You don't act like it when the trial comes, but you know it. Trials rightly help us to mature, he says. They humble us. They keep us from concentrating on worldly things. They show us what we really love. God even sends trials to enable us to help Others with their trials. You know, Paul talks about us comforting each other with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. It's the same thing. And he even sends trials to discipline us for our sin. 
But James is concerned generally with one reason for trials, and that is to reveal the genuineness of our faith. And the true believer knows he's saying, he says that, for you know. He teaches us to have a joyous attitude in it all. Count it all joy. Not because of the trial. It's not, woohoo, I get another trial. I'm happy about that. It's going to be a good day. But joy because of God's work in our lives in the trial. God is sovereignly at work in our trials to mature us. I shared this quote last week. Thomas Watson said, Though Christ died to take away the curse from us, yet not to take away the cross from us. Knowing this, then, you can count it all joy while bearing that cross. Because God is working patient endurance. That's what steadfastness means. Patient endurance in us through the trial has its full effect in our spiritual maturity right in the middle of that trial. I like the Phillips translation I talked to you about last week. J.B. Phillips in that verse 2. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into our lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. a good paraphrase. So I get it. That trial is for my maturity. It's not a natural thing to welcome a trial as a friend, so it must be supernatural. That's why he's talking to believers. And the way to bring understanding to it all, he talks about in our text today, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. Look at just three things here. What do we need? How do we get it? What comes from it? Or what do we discover? So these verses give us God's offer to help through these trials. What do we need? Wisdom. What do we need in the middle of the trial? Wisdom. Repetition of that word helps. When he says in verse 4, the end, lacking in nothing, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, in the Greek, the word but is there. It's not translated in the English very often. It is, I think, in the New American Standard. But if any of you lacks 
wisdom. It's sort of an underhanded thing for James to do that and to say that, but if any of you lacks wisdom, okay, I'd just take it a little test. And raise your hand if you lack wisdom. Okay, put your hands down. Now, raise your hand if you've got enough wisdom and you don't need any more. See, that's, that's why I mean it's underhanded. James shouldn't have done that. Everybody lacks wisdom. Boy, I'm really glad somebody didn't raise their hand. James knew it. Everybody lacks wisdom. So giving a look at the ultimate purpose of trials and how to endure them in a, in a fruitful manner, James continues by answering these questions that have to do with this verse 5. Why do trials overwhelm us? Why do we sometimes cave in and give up? What things take away the joy of enduring life in our circumstances? The answer is, we lack wisdom. He anticipates that some of his readers will say that they cannot discover any divine purpose in that trial they're going through. Have you done that? I cannot see anything, God, why God would allow this to happen in my life. Have you said that? You thought it? And so we need wisdom. Not just knowledge. And he says, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Knowledge is a good thing. But knowledge doesn't help here. It's simply not enough. And by the way, there are many PhDs out there who have no wisdom at all. There are a lot of educated fools out there. Wisdom, simply put, is knowledge rightly used. Plus, by saying what we, wisdom is what we need, he's saying that we're not equipped to handle the trials of life. We need something else. The only way for us to handle those things properly is to see them from God's perspective. And the only way to see them from God's perspective is to have God's wisdom. You've heard me share the illustration from Henry Blackaby's experience in God, that course many of us did Years ago, and that Blackaby says, you know, when you're in the middle of the circumstance, let's just say trial. When you're in the middle of the trial or problem or tragedy, whatever it is, you can only see the trial. And so he says, we've got to train ourselves. That was Blackaby's way of saying it. To, to step out of the trial and look at it from God's perspective. That's wisdom. Seeing that from God's perspective. And so he talks about the completed work of steadfastness there in verse 4. That, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then in the next verse, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So he's talking about what you need while verse 4 is going on, before you're made perfect. While that purifying work is taking place in your life. It's not just some philosophical wisdom that he's talking about. It's practical wisdom. We see in Proverbs, Jesus talks about it. In Matthew 7, the, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> Jesus says this, Everyone who 
Then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You get that? Hears these words of mine and does them. Who says be doers of the word? Okay. And does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came. The wind blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The doer of the word is the wise one. Solomon, in his introduction to the Proverbs, Proverbs 1, 1 through 4, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. It's all practical. Practical wisdom he's talking about here, living in the trials of life. That's what James is dealing with. The ability to view life from God's perspective. Plus, we need to understand that wisdom gives us protection, too, because trials can lead us to sin. Ultimately, trials can... Trials may not be the result of sin in your life. Trials may come for other reasons. The trials can, our response to trials can lead us to sin, so we, pray, we, 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 we need wisdom. James wants us in this context to have a wisdom that understands the nature of trials and knows how to meet those trials in a way that produces victory in your life. So they won't defeat you. So what do we need? We need wisdom. How do we get it? Ask. I'm going to read you um, Philip's paraphrase of verse 5, too. It's, it's really good. It, hel- it helps me. It's simple. He's simple, so he helps me. I'm simple. And if in the process... Any of you does not know how to meet any particular problem he has, only to ask God, who gives generously to all men without making them feel foolish or guilty. He may be quite sure that the necessary wisdom will be given. So James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Ask. Just ask. God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Wow, if I thought it was so easy, I'd have done it earlier. He didn't say ask God for a release from suffering in the experience. He doesn't ask God for strength to endure this trial. He doesn't ask God for deliverance or escape from this trial. He said, ask for wisdom. Simply ask of God. And God who gives generously, God who gives liberally, without despising your request, he'll give it. Spurgeon said, 
We are also ready to go to books, to go to men, to go to ceremonies, to anything except God. Consequently, the text does not say let him ask books, nor ask priests, but let him ask of God. Paul also puts the connection of wisdom and asking or prayer together. Colossians 1.9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then Ephesians 1, 16 and 18, 16, 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Remembering you in my prayers, that God may give you the spirit of wisdom. Wisdom and prayer. I've had people ask me during a particular trying time in my life at some point about a particular trial. And my joking prayer is, well, it's been good for my prayer life. It's not really a joke. You've probably said it too. At least you've thought it before. The trial does make us pray more, right? You're going through a trial, ask God. It should cause us to pray. The problem is that we'll pray for this and we'll pray for that to get the trial to where we want it to be. We'll pray for all this list of things so that the trial will will develop and flow in a way that's favorable toward me. Instead of, ask God for wisdom in this. Just pray for wisdom so you can see it God's way. God's perspective of God's world. Pray for perspective that is needed along the journey of life. Trials come. We all know it. Conflicts come. We all know it. Cancer comes. You know it. Pray for wisdom. It must come from God. And it's not automatic. Wisdom is not automatic. It's given when we ask for it, he says. And it's not just this one time asking. In the the tense of the, the word here, the present tense of the word, it means a continual asking of God. And let him ask of God who gives generously. Uh, Some of your translations may say liberally to all without reproach. And it will be given him. The promise is, ask, it will be given. Wisdom is always God's gift to his children. Jesus, talking to his disciples in Luke 21, says, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. In the trial with your adversaries, you're going to have wisdom, because I'm going to give it to you, Jesus says. There's nothing in God that keeps him from giving. You understand the God you worship today? There's nothing in him that keeps him from giving. God's practice is to give generously. 
without finding fault with your request. John Calvin said, This is added, lest anyone should fear to come too often to God, for he's ready ever to add new blessings to former ones without any end or limitation. And knowing God's generosity, friends, that he never despises or resents us for asking for, for, asking for deliverance, for asking for wisdom, it should encourage us to ask him often. You don't get tired of your asking. He's the God of the open hand. He's not the God of the clenched fist. The problem of this issue of wisdom is is not on God's part. We know He gives generously. We know He's willing to give. He's more willing and able and ready to give wisdom than we can ever imagine. The problem comes on our side. Problem comes on our end. James helps us to see this in his explanation of prayer for wisdom. Let him ask of God who gives generously to all. Maybe a better way of translating that command, because that's a command, by the way, that imperative there. If any of you is lacking wisdom, ask from the giving God. Ask from the giving God. That might help you see this command more clearly and in in light of that, recognize that this is outside the believer's ability to accomplish apart from God's supply of wisdom. Last week we talked about it. It, 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 it's, it's not natural for us to count it all joy in a trial, so it must be supernatural. That's why he's talking to believers here. And hey, it's, listen, it's one thing to hear a command, ask God, and yet another thing to believe that we can really approach God with our request and expect God to fulfill that request. Curtis Vaughn says, The stress is not so much on the act of giving as on the fact that giving is a habit with God. Do you see God in that light? Maybe you've had the idea that you've come to God with too many requests. You've fulfilled your quota of requests for wisdom. You can't do that anymore. Maybe I need to have another trial and ask God about something else. Especially that hesitation might be when it's a trial you've created. So we just try very hard to cope with it ourselves. We don't ask Him. We try to cope, we try to bear the trial, we try to bear the adversity in our lives, the problem as best we can on our own. That's not a recipe for success. Or maybe you think you've done something horrible enough, you're just too ashamed to ask God. In case you don't know, He already knows how horrible it is. 
Go ahead and ask. He's not repulsed by your request. Without reproach, he says. He's ready to give. He delights in giving. It's God's nature to give. A friend of mine, Kurt Richardson, uh, used his commentary in James. I emailed him this week and told him I was using his commentary. He said this, A close connection, and this sounds convoluted, but it makes sense. A close connection exists between faith, prayer, and wisdom. The one who asks for wisdom asks in faith. Asking in faith requires divine wisdom. To ask for wisdom is in itself wise and is part of persevering in faith and growing in wisdom. Growth in wisdom is to understand that everything of faith is from God. Now, you, got, you probably have to chew on that a while, and if you need to chew on it longer, let me know and I'll email it to you. What do we need? We need wisdom. How do we get it? We ask. What do we discover? We discover in many ways where we stand in our walk with the Lord. There's nothing in God that keeps Him from giving wisdom to His people. That said, there may be a barrier to keep you from receiving it or for God to even refuse giving wisdom. Because he says there in verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Ask in faith with no doubting. Believe and not doubt. This prayer of faith is more than just a prayer to accept Jesus. Or that prayer you prayed years ago. Or agreeing to some, some creedal commitment that you've made along the way as to who God is. Faith is the confidence that God will give what is requested. And I'll take it a step further. And to expect Him to do it. It's not faith in our faith. That's where the discussion goes wrong. Last week we talked about the unbiblical approaches to trials And one of them is to say that you just need more faith and you can overcome it. That's unbiblical. Problem is, most people are thinking about their faith and they're not thinking about God when they have that thought. I just need more faith. That's having faith in how much faith you have, not having faith in God who can answer the prayer. And you can expect Him to do it. It doesn't work that way. Without doubt, without doubting, with no doubt. There are several different kinds of doubt. You may doubt the ability of God. 
You may doubt the goodness of God. Doubting the goodness of God is saying, I know, if you're a believer, doubting the goodness of God is saying, I know God so loves the world, but I'm not sure how he loves me. And there's that doubt of personal commitment. Is following God just worth the effort? That's doubting as well. If you've not committed everything you have and everything you are, then doubt works in your life like a cancer. And James says, like a wave of the sea. Cancer rears its ugly head, and you go in recession, and then the cancer comes back, and then you go into recession. Doubt acts as a cancer in the life of faith. If you want to gain wisdom from God, James said, you must ask for it, and then endure in your desire to have it. You can't, deci- you can't decide, okay, Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm going to follow God completely. And expect to be granted wisdom. You've got to be single-minded in your commitment to Him. With no doubting. James illustrates that by a wave of the sea. You've been on a boat. You've been out in the water. You know about the wave of the sea. You know it's up and down. You know some of you are getting seasick right now as I talk about it. It happens. Up and down, up and down faith. We must be single-minded in our desire. By the way, just a side note, that waves of the sea that James talking about, he uses nature and illustrations a lot. You'll see this throughout James, how much he uses nature in his illustrations. The total lack of stability being blown and tossed by the wind up and down, up and down. Speaking of waves... Peter knew a little bit about waves as well. Remember that story in Matthew 14? But when he saw the wind, okay, well, Peter gets out of the boat. Jesus is walking on the water. Most of you know that story. If you don't, it's it's Matthew 14. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, came to Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and uh, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you, what? Doubt. Why? He had his eyes fixed on Jesus, single-minded, fixed on Jesus. Hey, I'm walking on water. Oh, there's water down there. Now he's double-minded. Double-mindedness. And when that happened, what happened? He started to sink. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It's kind of doubt. It's not irrational doubt that doesn't believe God exists. He's talking to believers here. We know who he's, he's talking to. He's talking about 
what kind of God we serve. When James says doubt, he's not talking about whether God is or not. He's already expressed that. They believe in God. The question of doubt is what kind of God he is. Kurt Richardson goes on to say, True faith is what it is because God is who he is. Since faith is always a matter of personal trust in God, to doubt God in any way is to call his character into question. Actually, doubting also calls the believer's character into question. And this is what James is concerned with, combating the corrupt faith of worldly Christians. So this doubting is really the believer holding back from acting, which is the entire point of the book. Pastor Greg spent two sermons talking to us about that. And because of doubt, the believer suffers the excruciating instability of a life torn by divided loyalties. Two loyalties. And James later describes that conflict between loving God and loving the world in chapter 4. Verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He, he, talks, about, he talks about all these things again. You'll hear this over and over. Prayer that moves God to respond must be a constancy of unwavering faith, single-minded faith in God's ability to fulfill His promise. The word he uses there, double-minded for double-minded. Is that what? Yeah, in verse 8, he's a double-minded man. That word there, dipsychos, dipsychos, double-souled or two-souled. James is the only person in in Greek literature to use this word. At least up to that point. Maybe it's been repeated since then. It's where it was first used in this book right here in this verse. He's the only one who uses this word double-souled or two-souled in the New Testament. It could be James invented the word. So if you invent a word, I guess you get to define it too. He helps define it in chapter 4. Turn to chapter 4 real quick, verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's where he uses it again. It's an expression of cleanse your heart, cleanse your hands. It's an expression of revealing impurity in the, in the inner person. A person that's not that, that's double-minded, he's not solely committed for, to God because there's impurity in him. He, he's still in love with the world. He's still in love with the things of the world. Where there should be one thought, one goal, one attitude. Not competing thoughts, not competing goals, not competing attitudes. 
double-minded person is one who wants his or her will. At the same time, they want God's will. Judy's reading Pilgrim's Progress. And Bunyan calls that person, that double-minded guy, Mr. Facing Both Ways. It's as if the soul says, I believe, and the one soul says, I believe, the other soul says, I don't. It's not just noticeable when you pray. It's noticeable in all your ways, he says. Your personal life, your business life, your social life, your spiritual life, a wishy-washy faith denies any chance of spiritual effectiveness. Double-minded. It's a matter of the heart. This particular verse uh, is used by the name it and claim it people. You just ask God and you get it. They use that verse a lot, that heresy. Justify their own doctrine. They claim, I just ask God for this, I'm going to get it. I just ask God for this, I'm going to get it. Name it and claim it. I can just ask and he gives generously. But that's not what James is saying here. It's really a matter of the heart. It's not words. Think of the Father in Mark chapter 9, verse 20 through 24. Quickly, let's look at that. And they brought the boy to him, boy that was convulsed and filled with the evil spirit. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This might seem like that man is double-minded. When he says, I believe, help my unbelief. But there's a big difference. He wanted to believe. He desired to believe. He even expressed his belief, and he felt the inadequacy of his own faith and asked for help in believing. That's what James is commanding us to do here. That man of that son, who, that father of that son who was healed, is not facing, facing both directions at the same time, like the double-minded man in verse 8. In spite of his weakness, he set his heart on belief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Christ responded to his faith. And in response to that kind of faith, the God who gives generously will give you wisdom in the middle of your trial if you only ask. So we're faced with a trial. We're to face it with joy, not grief or dread. We're to accept it not as something that will destroy us, but something that will develop us and build us up. How can we do that? How can we deal with trials that way? What's your trial? In the decision-making, discernment process of life, 
where trials, difficulties, problems, tragedies abound. You need a wisdom far above your pay scale. You need a much higher wisdom to discern God's meaning in all of this. And you get that through prayer. You all know Niebuhr's, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's uh, pithy little uh, slogan that you see on people's walls and framed in stores to sell and all. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the, current, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That last phrase, the wisdom to know the difference. Without doubting, without divided loyalties, I need wisdom. What do we pray for? Happiness? Success? Health? Money? James says pray for wisdom. Then we get to see God's purpose in all the challenges of life. Let Him ask. Go to God. Let Him ask God. And note that quickly. James doesn't say go to friends. Go to your Christian friends. Go to your family and see if you can get enough people to, to, to feel the same way you do about your hurt or your grief or whatever you're experiencing. He doesn't say, oh, and yeah, and make sure you talk to people who agree with you. He says go to God. And it's an imperative. Count it all joy is an imperative. A command. Let him ask is a command. Not to ask is not to ask is disobedience, and disobedience is sin. You have a trial. Don't go to friends or family. You can seek Christian counsel. That's not what I'm talking about. Go to God. So you can see it his way. Think about your current trial or trials. I know some of you. I know you're going through severe trials. You've spent more time talking to others about your trial than you have on your knees, and you're being disobedient. I read a story about a lady who lived through extremely tragic circumstances, overwhelming tragic circumstances. She was enduring, and her pastor came to her and said that he was praying for strength for her, praying you'll get through this. She said, please don't pray for strength. Please pray I have the wisdom not to waste this trial, not to waste all of this. Don't waste your trial. George Whitfield said, A virtuous and well-disposed person is like good metal. The more he is fired, the more he is refined. The more opposed, the more he is approved. Wrongs may well try him and touch him, but they cannot imprint on him any false stamp. And you believers here today, I want to remind you of one great thing that 
again, my favorite dead guy said, Thomas Watson, whatever trouble in this life a child of God meets with, it is all the hell he shall ever have. Hallelujah. You're a believer, a true believer. Whatever trial you face with in, in, in this life, it's all the hell you'll ever know. That's cause enough for joy. But you have many good reasons to count it all joy. So you, when you're going through these God-ordained trials, problems, tragedies, problem relationships, church problems, what do you need? You need wisdom. How do you get it? You pray. Why wisdom? Why not strength or grace or even deliverance? We need wisdom so we won't waste the opportunity God's giving us. Talking about that double-minded person, was I talking about you? Have you been trying to hold on to God with one hand and the world on another? Look again, because you're just grasping at the wind. You're being tossed by the waves. You may be in the midst of trouble, but you're not benefiting from it. And you can't consider it all joy because your trials are not being used as an opportunity for growth. You need to let go of the world and get off that spiritual roller coaster of up and down, up and down, like the waves of the sea. Ask God for wisdom. Ask Him to show you the bigger picture. And then in the light of the bigger picture, begin to grow and mature to the kind of person God wants you to be. When bad times come, in that case, you'll be able to consider it all joy. Spurgeon said, do you believe that God can give you wisdom and that he will do so if you ask him? Then go to him at once and say, Lord, this is what I need. Specify your wants. State your exact condition. Lay the whole case before God with as much orderliness as if you were telling your story to an intelligent friend who is willing to hear it and prepare to help you. And then say, Lord, this is specifically what I think I want. And I ask this of thee, believing that thou canst give it to me. You're all going through a trial, I know. We don't live in this world without a trial. Some big trials in here, some not so big. That said, I'm encouraging you today as much as I can encourage you. Don't waste this trial. We're grateful, Father, for your word. For the grace that comes from your word. For your abundant care in your word. The clarity of your word. We pray that your word might 
pierce our hearts. And that we might stand before that throne with, with boldness and ask, expecting you to deliver on your promise. I pray for those going through trials today. That we'd all see it from your perspective. That we'd all see it clearly. Knowing full well that apart from a prayer life, we can't see it at all. Do your work in each of us, particularly, Lord, do your work in those of us here today who don't know you as Lord and Savior. I pray that this might be their day to come before you face to face. Trust what your Son did on the cross in their behalf. For your glory and your purpose. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.